You can often tell a lot about somebody from their reading habits. Take Shlomo Chop, the managing director of Terra Strategies. One unusual recommendation he offers to young professionals coming up in the commercial real estate business is to do plenty of reading. And he emphasizes not just for purposes of action, but for purposes of knowledge. Chop's own must-reads range from Sam Zell's memoir and the story of the friendship between FDR and Winston Churchill to a 2,500-year-old Chinese treatise on military strategy. Hello, and welcome back to Investment Matters. I'm Paul Rostin, and I'm an executive editor at CPE. Today, Shlomo Chop and his colleagues at Terra Strategies own or manage an eclectic portfolio spanning geographic markets and asset categories. In our conversation, he offers thought-provoking ideas on such topics as market disruption, opportunity, and the art and science of tough negotiations. You'll hear how his views have been shaped by two decades in the business and by his multifaceted experience that ranges from investment and finance to operations. In 2010, for example, he launched Case Property Services, a distressed debt consulting firm. Yet another field of interest is technology. Chop worked in PropTech when the field was still in its infancy. He went on to develop and patent the Retail OS platform, a multi-channel ecosystem that combines e-commerce, retail, and fulfillment. Maybe not surprising for somebody who was the kind of kid that liked to take computers apart and put them back together for fun. And he speaks openly about the factors that have influenced his prodigious work ethic and his drive to success. Take a listen. Shlomo Chop, welcome to Investment Matters. It's really nice to have you here today. Thank you, Paul. It's my pleasure to be here. So uh, a big focus at Terra Strategies right now, of course, is finding opportunity amid market dislocation. So uh, how do you see distress evolving? Uh, what's your expectation about the levels of distress that we're going to see in 2024? Uh, are we going to see more of it, less of it, or about the same degree as we've seen in 2023, for example? I think 2023 is sort of a, a compass or a map going into 2024. I think 2024 will likely see a lot more of the same, given where yields are for sure. Um, and I think often you'll find that distress is there beneath the surface for a long time. And I've been dealing with uh, distressed assets for a bit here in you know 2000, even 2022. Um, and however, you just need to add that last ingredient. In this case, it was the raising of rates to sort of bring a fester to the surface. So every property, when you own a property, every day you got some issue, a tenant's got a boiler, a tenant's got a plumbing issue, or you got a, um, a tenant that wants a renewal, you have an issue with your loan, where your lender wants to hold certain cash, and you don't know what you're going to do, but all these problems can be solvable. But when you start adding that additional component that just makes it combustible, that last straw, so to speak, then that, then that continues to sort of exacerbated, if you will. And I think that's what we continue to see. Um, and for me, I'm really, you know, you know, my heart goes out to those that are losing money as a result, but the opportunities are significant. So um, to give us a little bit more of the, the big picture, could you tell us in which asset categories you're seeing the, the most distressed uh, or potential distress? Now, sometimes we get the impression that it's really all about the office sector. But is that really the case? 
I think at least right now at the moment we're recording over here, I think office is the biggest concern. I think I think the trap um the trap reports with regards to delinquency has retail at a higher delinquency rate, higher default rate. But I think um that's something that will continue to expand. Um, for example, if you even talk on the multifamily side, right, just by virtue of race, there's a lot of people that took out loans, bridge loans with uh, lenders, and they're hitting the targets on rents, they're hitting the targets on renovation, hitting the targets even on occupancy, despite it slowing down. But they're not getting to the refi where they need to get. And that in itself is a stress. Heck, what is the stress? The stress is um, not realizing your business plan. And you could have an unrealistic business plan at the start and therefore be in distress, which is there to begin with, but you know, it's being realized. Well, you could actually have challenges um, that cause your business plan not to be realized. And then it get even worse where the entire business plan didn't make sense to begin with in hindsight, right? Where you say, well, had I known that things were going to go to where it is. So multifamily is certainly going to be an issue. Any, any investment, even outside real estate, if you index your investment return, which is essentially what you do to the risk-free rate, which is, let's say, U.S. Treasuries, and you say that, hey, Treasuries are X, I'm going to be at X plus Y, that's great. But if Treasuries or the risk-free rate eclipses that X plus Y after a while, then you're going to be in problems. So I think that's going to continue to happen across every single asset class. Um, if we just take them one at a time, let's go very quickly through them. So hospitality. Well, are people going to continue traveling if it's leisure? If it's business, the people, are they going to travel for business or everything's remote work? You don't need to travel for business. So therefore, it won't be business lodging, right? Um, a lot of the lodging comes from contract, comes from, let's say, airlines and companies like that that rent out blocks of rooms. Will this still be consumer travel as a result? Industrial, e-commerce has its headwinds. We're now seeing that it's not profitable and we've known it's not profitable for a while, but we're seeing that companies are second guessing the push to e-commerce. What does that do to industrial distribution? Manufacturing will slow down demand. Manufacturers slow down. So these are all, all issues and concerns that continue to press. So I think across every asset class there's an issue. But retail and, and office are the most stark because the issues were the lack of keeping up with technolo technological change. And because of that, when you add the interest rate issue there, and you add, obviously, the pandemic, which on office took away occupancy and on industrial, for example, added occupancy and on retail took away occupancy. And then that all changes over time so rapidly, it calls it all into question. And that's why those are going to be the biggest, the retail and the, and the office for now are going to be the biggest leaders. So um, Tara has interest in properties that are distributed <laughs> across a wide geographic range, whether it's uh, Brooklyn, Cincinnati, Tulsa, uh, New Jersey, Pittsburgh, other locations as well. Could you, um, first of all, tell us a, a little bit about the uh, the strategy behind those holdings? And uh, I don't know, maybe this is also would be the time to tell our audience a little bit more about uh, how the company is structured as well in terms of some of the, the different affiliates and so forth. So, Sure, sure. I'd be glad to do that. So, Terra is uh, formed by a group of individuals who come from the family office background and also the, the real estate private equity background. 
And our holdings are national. Our holdings are across many different states. Um, Tara and another affiliate, myself, I've been doing workouts on distressed death in CMBS since 2010. And what this means is that we have very strong relationships on the lender side, on the brokerage side. And quite frankly, we have operations that we can leverage in-house when it comes to that, right? So if I'm looking at an office building for potential investment on the bond side or the debt side, I have brokers I could call tomorrow and get answers from them as to what's really going on in the market, what the scuttlebutt is around the specific asset. And I get that very quickly. I also can show up with an expert to look at an asset very, very easily. And that's across almost any market across this country. We have conviction with regards to specific markets. Some markets we want to touch right now, some markets we will focus on, some markets we like long-term, some markets we don't like long-term, right? But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this means that we have knowledge, experience, know-how, and the capital to do what needs to be done. And and that's really what this is intended to show. And you know, the cities you mentioned, obviously we have some properties on the website. That's a fraction of what we have. There is a pretty significant portfolio and pretty significant experience. So I think that's that. Another another angle I would say relates to Tara is I myself, I have three patents related to the future of e-retail and e-commerce. And it's not just about those that innovation and what we're doing on that front, which is a whole separate thing on the side. But what what that what that is is a sense of innovation. How do we innovate, right? So to a real estate owner, private property innovation means, oh, we're gonna add these, I don't know, upgrade our BMS system, a building management system that, mo- that modulates the, the air conditioning to be able to figure out the best time to start the air conditioning, the best time to finish and it'll save us X percent. That's around the fringes. That's great. It actually helps you in your bottom line on day one. But long-term, it doesn't prevent your property from going stale. It doesn't prevent your property from going obsolete. And the problem in commercial real estate, the biggest problem with the built environment and the reality is we're, we're a physical, we're physical beings. We're not in the metaverse. The biggest problem is that you can't revamp a property as easily as you could revamp a website. And as technology changes so easily, buildings, bricks and mortar cannot be changed so easily. Forget about the physical labor involved with it, just the cost involved with it. And I guess one's related to the other if you were to ask Adam Smith. But the physical labor will then impact, obviously, and, and the cost of all that impacts the dollar. So that's a real challenge. So what you, what you get by looking at Terra as a company is a company that is well-rounded on all aspects. And that's what we pride ourselves on. And, you know, and then we try to just be good people around that. Shlomo, I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, another one of your areas of expertise, which is um, securitization, CMBS. Um, I was really interested to read your comment that you made to one of our finance writers for a, a recent article. Uh, and my, my takeaway from your comment was that um, when it comes to special servicing in particular, many borrowers are finding themselves in a relatively weak position, not only because of the shaky fundamentals in the market, but also because they may be unfamiliar with the special servicing negotiation process. Um, so when all of that is, is the case, um, what what are the implications for workouts? Um, are are borrowers going to be reluctant to make a deal with the 
special servicer. How do you see all that uh, starting to play out? I think, wow. I think resolving the borrower lender issue around structured finance and particularly if we were to talk about a subsection of that being CMBS and part of that being the special servicing borrower relationship, that is one of the most difficult negotiations you could ever be in. I mean, you can you can be Henry Kissinger and you would not have it easily. And I'm not I, I that that is not just a joke, right? So Let's walk through this process, and I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but I think there are some very, very important things, and some of this is Monday morning quarterbacking because we're past that point. For example, most borrowers do not read their loan documents. If you're a large company, if you're a CEO, you rely on your attorneys, who then rely on your management people. If they're in-house counsel, then they have more transparent, more direct relationships to your management guys. If they're outside counsel, then they may not even talk to them until it's a done deal. The problem is, is that those loan documents, especially in structured finance, dictate how you operate the property on a day-to-day basis. If you don't know it, you will trip it up. End of story. There's no two ways about it. And if you're not sure about it, call your lender and say, hey, I voluntarily come in and see if I'm doing anything wrong. I promise you'll get an event of default notice. So, or notice of default, sorry. So <clears throat> that's problem number one. Problem number two is, I'm sorry to all the real estate guys who are going to be really upset at me for saying this, but you guys don't negotiate. Hey, I want to buy your property. I want to give you money. No, I don't want to sell. Oh, let me name it after your father. Okay, you got a deal. That's not negotiation. Or it's like, let's put the difference. At, or take it or leave it. I'm gone. That's not negotiation. Negotiation is when the guy's got a gun to your head and says, what you going to do? Right? I mean, that's, that's negotiation. And the answer is he's unreasonable. Great. He's unreasonable. Now, what are you going to do? When you enter into a CMBS loan, a structured finance insurance, you are essentially agreeing to take more money or money that otherwise other people wouldn't give you in exchange for providing that lender with certain protections. But what they do is they build in this thing called non-recourse where the loan isn't personally guaranteed by the borrower, right? But it is. Except they agree not to pursue you Unless you trigger some bad boy clauses. Bad boy clauses, for example, file bankruptcy, cause waste to the property, misrepresent. There's a whole host of things, right? But then the language may be interpreted in multiple ways. But at the end of the day, why could they give you more money? The reason they could give you more money is because you're giving them some more protections in exchange. For example, the right to manage your cash flow, the right to control your cash flow. But you need cash flow to operate. So they'll release money for expenses, right? Not so fast. If you're in default, or if they claim you're in default, they'll want you to cure that default first. And if that means you need to come up with capital to cure the default, which, by the way, you may or may not have readily, or you may have to go to a limited partner for you don't have it, you could end up, without going down a rabbit hole myself, go down a very deep black hole where you could otherwise take a healthy property and lose it. Okay, so the point I'm making over here is that special servicers are not the big bad guys. What happened was you took money, you agreed to a set of terms. The guy that lent it to you then sold bonds against the two insurance companies, some of which may have liabilities to you. Hey, if you have a New York life insurance policy, 
they may be the bondholder on your property. New York Life has guaranteed that bondholders a certain return. The problem is if you don't pay that back, they suffer. So why should the special service around bondholders be understanding to you when you maybe don't want to mitigate the risk as you intended you would when you took the loan? So the big picture here is, to sum this all up, is you make a bargain when you close. If you don't understand that bargain, you're screwed. If you understand the bargain and things go bad, you need to be party to the protections that have been put in place, whether those are foreclosure, cash sweeps, credit enhancements for putting up. And if the special services doesn't want to just give in because you decided that the property is worth less, well, what do you expect them to do exactly? Just say, sorry, you're right. We gave you all that money, and but you can't do better than me. How do I know? You don't have any equity in the deal. So the answer is it's a very tough negotiation. And it takes a lot of understanding, not just of what the loan documents say, but what the internal documents on the trust side say, and what the special service will or will not do. And then once in a while, you have a special service that's totally headstrong and won't give you what you want for whatever reason. And that's why you need to have the right representation to work through something like this. You know, your observations about the special servicing situation, how it relates to distress, bring up something else that um, I'd like you to address if, if you want, which is just given that that the um, climate that you see out there right now and special mm -hmm. servicing and some of these challenges, um, in your experience, does that necessarily have any implications for CMBS um, in general for CMVS volume, for the, the willingness of sponsors to uh, originate uh, th those pools, are, or is there really just no necessarily direct connection between the distress levels and the willingness of, of uh, sponsors to originate these pools? CMBS is losing tremendous market share, and it's hurting them multiple ways. First of all, it's hurting them in volume. They don't get as many deals. Because many borrowers, by the time they finish with the CMBS loan, even a healthy one says never again. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that they hurt themselves in a very different way, which is CMBS is a big lender to large office buildings and malls right now because they can provide a lot of liquidity, right? Now, historically, you would have large assets and you would have a bunch of small assets in the trust as well. And you'd put a nice mix together, and that's how it hedged it, right? So if let's say office was awful, especially on the high level, you have a bunch of small boutique offices that do well because people still need to come to office no matter what anyone says, I'll fight that one. But these people still need to come to office, so you'll have a bunch of small offices to offset it. But if I'm a smaller borrower with a $10 million loan and I can get a loan from my local bank, even if I go recourse, but I have someone to talk to, or I understand that their, their methods of dealing with the loans are very similar to what I believe loans should be, as opposed to not me, but the borrower, um, as opposed to the CMBS, that's a whole new set of, you know, a whole new mousetrap that I don't understand that will trigger and default. I'm just going to go there. So as a result, not only are they getting less volume and it will continue to decline, but also they're getting less of the hedging, the less of the mix, the less of the diversification. And that hurts CMBS and that hurts bondholders. And I, I want to add one thing about special servicing because I put it all on the borrowers before. Special servicers 
are essentially in a position of fiduciary responsibility to the bondholders. And they need to do whatever they can to protect those bondholders. But as you know, doing nothing, no one could fault you for that. Hey, we just foreclosed. Have a good day. The guy asked, didn't make sense. We determined we didn't like his proposals. At the moment, it didn't make sense. But if you're going to modify it and give him something, people will hold you accountable. The problem with that is, is that special servicers need to do a much better job. And I'm sure they will as things change because they've gotten way more sophisticated and way, and way better at what they're doing. And that's going to happen over time. To be able to assess when to hold them and when to fold them, okay? Not always does it make sense to get rid of the property manager to put a receiver in place. Sometimes you keep the property manager in place because the property manager knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak and could actually help transition you to a more healthy situation. But right now, most of them would, most asset managers, and it's not just, it's not companies, asset managers, will rather not do that, okay? I'm seeing some hopeful signs from some of the asset managers that I'm personally dealing with that they're more thoughtful about the situation, and I'm encouraged by that. But there's still a lot of tribalism that needs to be overcome for the greater good. Well, um, Tara is perhaps a relatively new participant um, in the finance scene, so to speak, but your own experience, your own track record goes back a couple of decades. So um, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about your own career journey. For instance, were you always interested in the business, even back in school? Did, did it evolve over time? What is the backstory? Well, um I don't come from a wealthy family um, and I've always been, uh, wow, well, we're, doing, we're doing the Oprah Cash situation over here. So, um, so I, I've, I've always been a, uh, not a hyper, but a bit more ADD type, type kid um, and always a rabid, rabid reader. I, 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 I love reading. I love learning. I love, I love understanding stuff. I used to put computers together, take it apart. And I still didn't know what the stuff was, but I knew where it went back. And oh, that made that, that did that, et cetera. So that, that was, that was my background. Um, I was very motivated as chip, a chip on my shoulder as a kid. I didn't, you know, I didn't have what other kids had and I wasn't poor by any means, but it drove me to find like, where can I add value and make money? And I knew I wasn't going to say, hey, dad, um, I got a deal. Can you put a mill in? And it wasn't going to happen. So I had to bring value to the table otherwise that other people didn't, didn't bring to the table. And that meant knowing the stuff better than everybody else. And I just got to meet people, spoke to people, um, worked hard, read a lot. And over time, you know, my first official job was in real estate and prop tech, working for Iris Lotto at, at Eastern Union. It wasn't Eastern Union then. He had this company called Simple Remote. We sold software, um, met a lot of great people along the way, and um, then decided I'm going to go and do deals myself, wheeling and dealing. The old game got screwed on more fees than I than I made. You know that old you know the the rite of passage for any real estate broker or any real estate person out there. Um, and then just over time was the person around the table that had a grasp of things more than most. And when 2010 went down, 2008 and beyond went down, 
uh, one of my attorneys said, hey, Shlomo, take a look at CMBS. And I downloaded the docs and I read through it and I understood 20% of it. And I, you know, I have the, the pleasure of knowing some people in the industry who were very patient with me and just learn from there. And, you know, that's how it evolved. So it was just a, a natural, um, you know, being drawn, being drawn to um, a business that many in my community are involved in and then working hard and seeking out people and seeking out their advice and learning from people to get to that point. And a key thing, a key thing I got to tell you is the fact that, you know, I went to Yeshiva and I learned, I learned the Talmud and it's a very complex thing. And as a kid, it sort of trains your mind, like, you know, just sort of, you know, relationships between different topics and how one influences the other and, and sort of the logic and next tier scenarios. It just was something that brought me to eventually the point of getting into the, onto the debt restructuring side, understanding CMBS and working through that. And, you know, I continue to learn every day. I got to be frank, I continue to learn every day. I'm not a classically trained economist, but I've called bull crap on a lot of stuff going on and been right. And doesn't mean I was right in the thought process. Maybe I was lucky several times, but I just tend to see things clearly for what they are. And as you think on your career path up to this point, are there any particular mentors that have been uh, the most influential that, that you'd like to give a shout out to um, over the last couple of decades or so? Wow, there's so many people. There's so many people. So, I mean, Iris Lottowitz and A. Bergman, they, they, you know, they believed in me. They gave me my first shot. I got my $700 a week, uh, $700 a week salary job plus benefits right when I got married. Uh, so that I have a lot of great, I'm very grateful for them. Uh, Stephen Hersko, another partner. When I got into CMBS, there was one asset manager who was really good to me. Um, spent a lot of time with me when I started. Alex Kellick at CW Capital, really great. I wouldn't call him a mentor, but he's someone that was very helpful. I've made a lot of other friends in the industry. His boss, Andy Hunnamark, guys like that. Um, my partner, Dover Binowitz, always been a you know, helpful. There's too many people. I mean, um, Joe Weinberg, okay? Northeast Enterprise. I mean, he was he he told me how he used to buy shopping centers. He'd show me what he'd buy shopping centers at 10 caps, a Kroger with a 10 cap, you know, with a vacancy. And he sold it to him 400 bucks a foot. He could increase rents and extend them out despite the short term. And he'd buy it at a 10 cap and flip it at, a, at an 8 cap, right? I mean, these are deals. These are things. But, you know, and then even more currently, I mean, Oh man, there's there's too many people. I mean, even most recently, someone that's been very helpful to me has been uh, Ken Ashley, and he's someone that uh, you know Cushman also very helpful. I'm gonna miss people. I should probably stop this because I miss a lot of people, and they're gonna be all offended by me. There's so many, so many people who've been helpful to me, and I wouldn't be at this point without that, right? So, um, someday I'll put together a huge list, and they're gonna say thanks for thanks for the notoriety. Just send the check, but you know it is what it is. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> but I, I, I made money with those people, so that's good. But fair enough. And I'm sure that anybody that, that you unintentionally left out will, will understand that there, there's a, a very, very large roster of folks who have been influential, either, you know, uh, and, and helpful over the course of uh, your your career. So let, let me just yes. turn that issue um, uh, the other way around, if I could. Oh, I, I, I need to I need to, I need to oh, point please. one other person. Jump out. in, jump in. OK, well, because he's going to have a problem with it. Jason Chidoba. Who, who is a friend of mine, has for over, probably for the last 10 years, 
as always, like, hey, talk to this person, talk to that person. And while, you know, reporters don't print things that you, you know, that are total BS, right? So obviously I had something to say, but he's he helped me grow my brand. And for him, I'm forever grateful for everything he's done for me. And he knows that, but given where we are, if I wouldn't have mentioned that, I mean, I'd be taken out back in shop. There's no question. So yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, Jason will appreciate that, and and I do too. Yes. Yeah. Um, but on the topic of uh, mentorship and career growth, now that you yourself have been around the block a few times, I have to ask you, um, as you ad advise, you know, young folks who may be interested in, in coming up through the, this business, um, what what are a couple of uh, principles, tips, ideas that that uh, just even off the top of your head that, that you would advise the 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 new generation that that's coming up to keep in mind and try to pursue. Well, I think the first thing is to read a lot. Um, I, I don't care. You need to read a lot. The second thing is try to read books about people and not books by people. Right? It's like. Most people writing a book are trying to sell you something. And if it's not, it's the book, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a total waste. But, and then there are those people who have made it and then sell the book, right? Like, for example, Sam Zell. I mean, his book is gold, okay? But you just need to read and not just read for purposes of action, but read for purposes of knowledge, let it then marinate and come up with a solution. Now, here's the thing. I will say something here that I thought years ago, and every person, every kid listening to this will say, you know what, Shlomo, big talker. You got all the time in the hands. You have money. You're making a living. I got to do it. I'm not paying my $700 rent next month. Like, what do I do? Like, what it is? The answer is very simple. Let me be very clear. And this is going to hurt, but you're going to suffer. If you want to make real money, you're going to suffer. If you don't want to make real money, get a job, make 250, 300, you'll have a respect, you'll put it, you'll live comfortably, you'll get a salary, you'll eventually maybe tap out a 500 grand plus bonus, you'll have a very nice career. And do that. If you want to swing for the fences, you got to pay to play. There's no two ways about it. And if you're ready to pay to play, then you got to put in the effort. Because if you don't put in the effort, you may get lucky, but you'll probably go to prison. That's my gut, okay? I think we'll see a lot of people now who made a lot of money in the past 10 years, or past seven years, and they're going to go to prison because they signed things they shouldn't have. They didn't read it. The lawyer said, hey, sign it. Well, just because the guy got a law degree doesn't mean he understands how commercial real estate works, okay? And just because he worked by another attorney doesn't mean that he, that he learned from that attorney what needs to be done. So, and again, it's a little too much thing going to prison, but there's going to be a lot of those guys that's going to happen. It's going to come from the fast money, the big talkers, the guys that took money from LPs and they sold them a beautiful story. But if you didn't know what you're doing with it, they're going to come after you. And maybe it'll be prison. Maybe it'll be money, a lawsuit, a, a civil lawsuit. But that's what happens from not knowing. So if you don't put in the effort, you will suffer. So you got two choices. Put in the effort and hopefully you make a lot. And worst case, you go get yourself a job. Or go get yourself a good job and build a career. And you'll live comfortably. You'll have, you'll have a great quality of life. Because let me tell you something. When you got a lot of money, your quality of life sucks. And that's okay. It's a choice we each make. It's a choice we make. But that's the reality of it. Yes, you do a lot of nice, good things. But at the end of the day, you're a slave to what you got going on. 
you know, in Hebrew, we got a saying that says, the more assets, the more worries you have, and that's the truth. Well, on, on the subject of reading, Shlomo, since you're a big, big proponent of that, um, are there any particular books that, that come to mind that you would give a shout out to, whether it's just on the, the topic of um, uh, business in general, uh, you mentioned, you know, Sam Zell, or um, equally important, uh, books that, that you would recommend just for the just for the goal of stimulating the, the, and training the mind. I mean, you know, you've studied Talmud, so you know all about that, certainly. Somewhat, somewhat, yeah. Um, so yes, I do actually, I have a list of books that I have on a website somewhere, but it's, I'm not looking to promote that. Let me just, I'll give you guys the books, some books that are interesting, and I'll tell you why. And I think it will give people understanding to the extent they're interested in how I came to, to my thought process and what I do, okay? The first book that I think is imperative for anybody five year, three years ago would be a book called From the Ground Up by Douglas France. It's about the redevelopment of the old post office in San Francisco and how it went tremendously over budget because it had too many consultants and too many concepts and too many ideas too far overreaching. So that's, again, that's what got me off ground up development. Now, here is the best book, the best negotiation book. Franklin and Winston is the name of the book. And it talks about um, Benjamin Franklin and Winston Churchill during World War II. And in negotiation, you could either say, I can't reach a deal, have a good day. Or you could try to make a deal. Winston Churchill had zero leverage. Franklin Roosevelt oversaw a country that did not want to go to war. But yet Winston Churchill was able to coax Franklin Roosevelt into giving him things and getting him into that war. Now, of course, you know, Hitler and the Nazis helped, for sure. But at the end of the day, what he did was he, he became subservient. He, he bowed down almost proverbially to Franklin Roosevelt and made himself to be like a nothing. He begged him. He tried to appeal to it. And he also made his problem Roosevelt's problem. And this is a great book. It talks about their relationship. So that's another great book. Another book, Am I Being Too Subtle, Sam Zell. Must read. Absolute must read. Great book. His audio tape is great as well. It's hard sometimes to listen. His voice was, was a little harder and he talked very slow. But if you speed it up on Audible, that's why I do. I listen to everything Audible on 1.5 speed. That's great. Here's a few others. Zeckendorf Autobiography. It's a lot of pounding the chest, but it talks about creative structures. Bill Zeckendorf was the first real big syndicator out there. Um, a lot of buildings that you see out there today is one of those. Another book that's great, Business Adventures by John Brooks. Um, that, you know, Bill Gates says the best business book ever read. It's right on the cover. And that talks about screw-ups. Talks about grand plan screw-ups and what happened. The Ford Etzel, for example, is one of them. So, um, and you don't know what a Ford Etzel is. You may know, but most people listening don't know what a Ford Etzel is. And there's a reason for that because it was a spectacular disaster. And then there are two books that are classical books, a little harder to read but imperative to understand the underlying messages. The first is, which is the less controversial of the two, which is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. No one's going to war. Well, people are going to war, unfortunately, but no one is going to war. No one in business is seeing themselves go to war. 
but the concepts are still the same. Always be from a position of high, a high position. Understand the size of the armies. Like, and you can basically come up with, you know, with ways to visualize that in business. Now, by the way, before I get to the last one, all these books are somewhat abstract. Sam Zalesto, Zeckendorf Lesto are somewhat abstract to real estate. Don't read it and try to come up with what you're going to do as a result. No, this is how you read them. You read them, let it marinate. You go back a few a few months later, you read it again, let it marinate, a few months later, let it marinate again, and just forget about it. And day-to-day, -day, in your day-to-day, -day, things will come up and you will take actions that will be based on what you've learned because it will be common sense to you. Let me give you the last one, which is very, very controversial, but nonetheless, it's imperative to know how not to be. The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Right, you need to understand that there are people out there that are Machiavellian, and you need to know what their game is. And the best way to counter it is to understand how to deal with it. And from time to time, when you come up against one, you need to fight fire with fire. Well, that that's quite a formidable list of uh, books and authors, Shlomo. And uh, yeah. I have to say, I'm really intrigued by your reminder that one of the ways that we take away, or how we take away the lessons from our reading, is is not necessarily to cram for the test, but kind of let it percolate into our consciousness, and and uh, read it not once, but if you can, a couple of times, and and over time, it really does bring those uh, bring that wisdom to you. There is a there is a recent book, and I'm gonna about the Federal Reserve. I think that is that is really great. That's worth reading because it tells it sort of it 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 um it informs you, it informs you as to what's going on. It's written by I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the name Gianna Smialek, I believe it is from uh, she's a reporter I believe for the New York Times. Um, and it's the history of the Federal Reserve and also what they did during COVID. It's called Limitless. I'm reading that now. And that is absolutely great because anyone in commercial real estate wants to understand the Federal Reserve works. It's important to understand. It's important to, to read books like this. And another good one that I read recently that's not on my list is, is Billionaire's Row, um, which is also a great book. But, but the, I just interrupted you, sorry, about the Limitless because that's actually a key one right now. But like you said, you can't take notes. You can't you can't take action from history. You can only try to use the lessons you've learned in real time and let it happen on its own. Well, that that's certainly enough reading to keep any of us busy for quite a while. <laughs> yes. So that that that's terrific. Well, um, I, I want to get to one of my favorite segments of investment matters, which is in executives off the clock. And uh, none of us can work 24-7, although it sure seems like we try to sometimes. So when it's time for you to finally step away from that daily grind, um, is there anything that you particularly like to do um, for a change of base? I have a feeling that reading is maybe one of them, um, but are there any others in particular that that you try to do to just, just kind of give yourself a break now and then? It's funny. Um had I, if I would have a choice, I likely would never take a break. Never. Hmm. I love what I do. And I love the action. Not only the action, but I love accomplishing. Right? Um, but I don't have a choice. And the reason I don't have a choice is because I'm a religious Jew. So every Friday night and Saturday, I'm offline. Every Jewish holiday, I'm offline. 
And for me, my mind goes a million miles an hour. It could be very difficult sometimes. But I think that's the only thing that is keeping me alive, so to speak, because I'd probably be worn out by now. So just spending time with my family um, and, you know, just that that forces me to shut off the phone, to shut off the computer and do what needs to be done. Like, I, I, I've never gone on a cruise, but I wonder if I'd be able to survive it. And hopefully, I think now they probably have Wi-Fi. I can connect my phone. But, like, my wife will probably kill me if we went on a cruise together. Like, she'd literally throw me overboard. Like, I got enough of this, buddy. Goodbye. Because I'd be on my phone the whole time. But the point is, nonetheless, like, I I love, like, if you tell me a choice right now, hey, Shlomo, do you want to go travel somewhere and tour? Or do you want to, you know, try to buy that building? I'd be like, dude, where's the Argus run? That's literally what would happen. Well, Shlomo, I really want to thank you for taking time to join us today on Investment Matters. It's been a really uh, lively conversation. I appreciate your your openness and your frankness about how you're seeing things right now. And I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be a, a lot of informative takeaways for our audience. So I uh, really appreciate your time. Nice talking with you. Yeah, listen, at a minimum, I should get Amazon links for those books so we can make a couple of bucks here. But otherwise, I'm teasing. <laughs> no, but thank you. No, I appreciate the time. And I, I hope I hope it's helpful to somebody starting out in the industry and I didn't scare them away. Yeah, I, I, I think it will be. That was my conversation with Shlomo Chop, the managing partner at Terra Strategies. Please join me in January for another conversation with a leading commercial real estate investment executive. You can find archived episodes of Investment Matters and more CPE podcasts on Apple Podcasts and on our website, commercialsearch.com. Before you go, let me take a moment to tell you about an exciting opportunity. The CPE Executive Council is a group of industry leaders who exchange ideas about trending real estate issues. Highlights of their discussions are posted on our website and featured in our newsletters. If you're interested in joining the council, please contact CPE's Editor-in-Chief, Jessica Fear at jessica.fiur at cpe-mhn.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Investment Matters and be well.